The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm not Josh Nelson. I'm, in fact, Jim Margulis, and Josh is getting the episode off because it is mid-February. February 17th, for those who are counting, and besides Valentine's Day and President's Day mattress sales events, it means it's time for my annual chat with Keith Law. Keith spent the last week rolling out his farm system and prospect rankings for The Athletic, including an organizational talent ranking that has the White Sox last, but a White Sox top 20 prospect list that has more going for it than a last place finish suggests. If you're familiar with Keith's work, he'd let you know if he thought the cupboard were completely bare, and he's here to elaborate on what he thinks about what's going on with the White Sox farm system. Keith, thanks for joining us on the Sox Machine podcast. Uh, Last time we talked was before... The last baseball season, which was actually a season, who knows about this one right now, but when it comes to putting together your prospect lists, you know, last year we had a no minor league season, uh, start and stop for college seasons, the weird rosters, COVID situations. Did this year feel more normal when it came to evaluating prospects and where they are? Yeah, it was closer to normal, uh, which I'll take, right? At this mm-hmm. point, that's that seems pretty good. Um, I got to see more guys particularly pro guys, never enough, but I saw it was something close to regular when it came to a regular season for me, when it came to going out and seeing minor league players. And actually the way the season extended into September worked out really well for me schedule wise. Cause of course, by that point I was completely vaccinated and felt a lot more comfortable going out uh, into the world. And I mean, at this point sitting outside at a game, I don't I'm not really that concerned anyway, but mm-hmm. the one thing that was different for me last year because I barely saw anyone for the draft who I couldn't drive to. That will be different. Like we're recording this on, I think it's Wednesday. Days mm-hmm. of the week are kind of an abstract concept. Tell um, me about yes. it. Yes. Uh, as what was the line for? I don't know if you watch Big Mouth on Netflix, but it's oh, time is a flatbread pizza. That's pretty much how I feel <laughs> about life right now. Um, and so, but I'm go- anyway on Monday. I'm flying to Georgia to see Andrew Jones kid and maybe another amateur while I'm there. And it's like, Oh, well, I didn't do that last year until May. I only flew one time to see amateur players last year. This year we are at least proceeding under the assumption that I will be going out to see potential first round picks again. And that just makes such a huge difference 
for all my coverage for the rest of the year, not just draft, but even mm -hmm. rolling into the following off-seasons prospect stuff. Just the act of going out and seeing players and being with scouts, just sort of reconnecting with folks I haven't seen in three years. That'll Then at that point, I'll feel a lot more like we're back to something approximating normal. Well, what's, what's different about this year when it comes to our discussions is that, you know, every year it seems like we'd start with a point of contention between you and White Sox fans. And I actually got a comment uh, through our Patreon uh, channel saying uh, that, tell Keith I was vehemently opposed to his assessment of Nick Madrigal when he's on the team, but now that he's traded, I 100% agree with this scouting report. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. I, I, but I'm also one, I'm, I'm figuring Cubs fans who did not have an opinion on Nick Madrigal Mm -hmm. nine months ago we'll have very strong opinions on him now. <laughs> but uh, now i think there's a lot more agreement in that the white Sox farm system is pretty much barren uh when it comes to impact contributors for the foreseeable future and you, and you reference them and being the worst farm system in baseball but for a good reason that they've used their top prospects to build out their roster and, and have uh tiers of talent on the 26-man roster the one thing I'm curious about is that the White Sox have been in this position before. Uh, I'm thinking 10 years ago when Addison Reed was the consensus number one prospect and he was just a reliever. Um, this year feels a bit different in that there is more room for optimism or a few more guys to dream on, maybe fewer guys who are, are chained to first base or playing positions but are destined for first base. Uh, a few more athletes, more international players. Is that correct, or is that, uh, from your perspective, am I somebody who's just trying to talk myself into being excited about guys I have to follow? No, I actually think you did a great job. Um, I would, I mean, can we just stop right there? Yes. We're done. Right? You just, you've covered, <laughs> I'll blur you've it. covered everything. So good job. <laughs> um, really appreciate you making my life so easy on this podcast. Thanks for the time. We'll do this again next year. <laughs> Gotta ask about your book. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. That is true. No, I think that's a, I think it's a great summary of things actually, of the situation. Um, because, yeah, they've drafted differently. They have. And we should acknowledge that, that there is a change in approach. And obviously, they've been through a couple of different scouting directors as well. Um, and I think also it's you know, the, a lot of the draft philosophies have been top down as well. You know, when they were going, you know, a lot more conservative, they were I think a lot of that was coming from the front office. Hey, we're trying to build a contender here or or our farm system is not in good shape. We need college guys who are going to populate it fairly quickly. That seems to be over. You don't take Colson Montgomery in the first round if that's what you're looking for. He's a you know 19-year-old high school player from rural Indiana. If he's a fast mover, it's going to surprise even people, I think, who really liked Colson Montgomery. And that's fine. I'm not saying that it makes that there's anything wrong with the pick from that perspective, but that's very different than taking you know Jake Berger in the first round, for example, mm -hmm. or Zach Collins in the first round. This is a different, different approach. I think you're also correct about some of the international guys too. And I, I will say, you know, Oscar Colas is super interesting. Real, I, I, you know, near the very top of my list of guys I would really like to go see. If I get a spring training trip in, and as long as they're holding minor league games, I'll go at some point. Mm -hmm. Like he's going to be in the top maybe three guys I want to run out and see because he could move quickly. I don't usually rank, like I don't rank the international free agents who are 16 because nobody scouted them since they were. 13, mm -hmm. right? It's all, you know, I, it's not really, but I'm going to be facetious. It's all pretend, right? We have no idea. I said this to a reader the other day who was arguing for Arias, the kid the Yankees just signed, 16-year-old. Because, of course, the Yankees signed him. He should be a top 100 prospect, right? That's just how it mm -hmm. works. Um, and, you know, no one's seen that kid since he was probably 13. No one outside the Yankees system. So, for all we know, he's Kevin Maiton, 
right? Who was supposed to be the best hitter out of Venezuela since Miguel Cabrera and had that work out. Mm-hmm. So whereas Colas is 20, going to play at 23 this year. And he has played a little bit of real professional baseball. He played in Cuba and he played in Japan's NPB. So we have some idea of what he is. We haven't seen him recently, but I think I acknowledged in a couple of places, he might actually be a top 100 prospect. We just kind of don't know because we don't have recent looks or data, but he's pretty good. When was the last time they had a guy like uh, a, a guy like that at the top of their system, plus a couple of high school guys, and they're still the bubbling under high school guy, high school pitchers, the Matt, well, they're not high school pitchers anymore, but the Matt Thompsons, the Andrew Dahlquist, like, yeah, they had a Luis Robert pop in, but then he'd be the only guy, mm-hmm. right? It would just be him. Now it's Colas isn't the automatic number one because there's a couple other interesting high upside guys in the system. So for a system to rank 30th, there, there's more to talk about. At least this could be a much worse conversation for a 30th ranked farm system. This isn't the angels from five years ago where I said it's the worst farm system I'd ever seen. I I actually still – I think that held up. That system was really bad. This is not that. Yeah, Jose Rodriguez is one of those players who the White Sox haven't really had the anonymous five-figure signing out of the Dominican Republic. All their signings have basically been out of Cuba, some out of Venezuela, but Mm -hmm. the ones who actually get traction and – conquer levels you know that haven't been his kind of profile um my concern about him or at least if i'm looking for uh you know something to kind of weigh down the enthusiasm besides the you know just the production which has been great is that you know when i watched him play he seems like somebody who's a really good ball player and sometimes those guys can stand out against uh you know a ball levels especially since at least you know baseball america had a story about how ragged a ball was so maybe just a a player who really knows to play the finer points of the game and and can hits bad pitching might stand out there, but against Birmingham might be challenged a bit more. Uh, what do you, what's your assessment of Rodriguez as he enters what will be age 21 season and double A for the first time, it, it, at least a meaningful stint in double A for the first time. Yeah, that's a, actually, I think it's a pretty good summary. Um, you know, there are a couple of things I would be looking for. Like I like Jose Rodriguez, just to be clear, a couple People said they thought I was maybe a little too low on him, but there's, there are things he, there. I'd say it's more, questions he has to answer as opposed to he's not that good, right? There are guys where, you know, it's, I'm lower on this guy because he can't do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. With Rodriguez, I think it's more, we got to see a few things. First of all, can he play shortstop? He can definitely play second base. We, we know that's there. But if he's got to play second base, then obviously we want to see a little more offense than we would want to see if we knew he could play shortstop. Can he play shortstop as a regular? Can he play shortstop 40 games a year? Can he play shortstop on an emergency basis? That is something I think we'd like to see more. He can really hit a fastball. I'm quoting myself there um, from the the capsule in the White Sox ranking. But he doesn't really work the count that well. And we have to see how he fares against, you know, double-A pitchers generally do a better job of locating their off-speed stuff. And so, okay, what happens now? Does Is he going to chase sliders out of the zone? Is he going to go after them? Because he can still put the bat on them, but obviously it's not going to be the right kind of contact. Or... Can he make the adjustment and will he be able to lay off some of those pitches? And I don't you know, less, a little less concerned about whether he's going to have enough walks. I just, for a guy like that who can hit the ball pretty hard, mm-hmm. just make sure you're making good decisions at the plate, right? Swing at strikes, swing at pitches you can hit, could you know, make better contact quality on. If he continues to do that, I'll be pretty happy with him. But those, I'd say those are probably the two things I would most like to see from him this year. If the walk rate goes up, great. I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over that. If he's um, just a, a low walk, low strikeout guy, he's got 15 plus homer power. 
And if he can play shortstop even on a part-time basis, that's a very valuable player and probably somebody who has a bunch of two to three war seasons sprinkled over the course of a long career. I'd be very happy with that. Yeah, Yolke Cespedes, you were lower on than I anticipated. I, I think the one thing I'm, I'm when I'm reading your blurbs, I saw Yolke Cespedes at 12 and I thought, oh boy, you know, that's here comes the hammer. Uh, just based on other prospects being ranked <laughs> above him. But the blurb actually wasn't that critical. I think it's what everybody saw in the Arizona Fall League, a little bit double-A, but was exacerbated in the Arizona Fall League, was just the uh, strikeouts in lack of quality contact against, you know, theoretically better pitching, although the AFL doesn't usually qualify. Um, yeah, the AFL stunk. Yeah, <laughs> but I saw him in, in high A with Winston-Salem, and he had, you know, some 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 nice games. He was playing center field well, so, you know, I liked him there, double-A. I thought he had a, you know, a little bit of a test, but when it comes to, like, I guess the spread between, like, say, somebody who might rank fourth in another list, might rank 12th on yours, What's the difference in, in terms of quality? Are you talking about like all B minus C plus guys or are there is there really difference between like Cespedes at 12 and somebody like, say, you know, Dahlquist, Thompson at five and six? I have a lot more confidence in Dahlquist and Thompson turning into something more than, say, an up and down guy or a you know, bat last guy on the bench than I do with Cespedes. Cespedes is a pretty big obstacle ahead of him. His pitch recognition and just, I think generally his overall approach at the plate is not very good. He's really, he's, he's not uh, Joanna Cespedes, right? He's been, you know, if his last name, I was, you know, I say this with a lot of players, right? If his last name were Smith, would we think of him the same way? In this case, probably not. Uh, Sounds like the anchoring effect. Yes. Oh, it's very, thank you. Very well done. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely. Inside game is. available on paperback. Thank, thank you. Yes. So yeah, I don't think his, I don't think his approach is pitch recognition, his ball strike recognition is anywhere near for a where it should be for a guy his age and b um, at the point where I would feel comfortable projecting him as more than what I just described the up and down guy. Whereas Dahlquist and Thompson are both guys with wide ranges of potential outcomes, but within those ranges of outcomes, right? If you sort of like the right tail, those of you who are statistically inclined, you can picture kind of a curve of potential outcomes. Like that right tail for those guys is there's more to it. There's there's more space under the curve there because both of those guys have essential ingredients to turn into major league starting pitchers, maybe even above average starting pitchers. I don't see that with Cespedes, especially given his age. I think he's he's the one guy in that system where I say that's hype. Or what's the uh, the Mad Max, right? Tom Hardy, the gift, right? That's bait. Yeah, <laughs> that one's. Oh, his last name's Cespedes. That's bait. And he does. He has huge raw power, right? It's very it's very easy to get sucked in. You go see that guy on the right day, and he puts two balls into the onto the berm at your you know selected minor league park. I get it. I absolutely get it. But I think the other things are some of the more essential things are probably missing there. And they just have more interesting guys, most of whom are younger and a lot of whom have better chances to turn into. I want the 55s or better, right? Give me the above average or better regulars. Now, not all these guys are going to turn to that, but they got a lot of guys ahead of him who could be 55s or better. Do you give any grace to somebody like with his background? Because Colossal might encounter the same thing with the multiple year layoff, yeah. the transition to stateside, the uh, in Cespedes' case, he had some visa issues and an early shoulder issue. Do you uh, give him a little bit of grace and wait for like a first full normal season if this can be a normal season for him to uh, show exactly what he has across the board? I mean, it's probably going to be hard to believe, but I think I did. 
Like he would okay. have been lower <laughs> if I hadn't <laughs> considered that. I kind of think he's not that good. I really okay. just think he's not that good. And I could be wrong. Obviously, I've been wrong on lots of players before. White Sox fans are very familiar with that. I, I, I mean, gosh, I saw him and I saw Jose Rodriguez together. And was, well, that's an easy choice, right? I want mm-hmm. that guy. The guy who's four years younger and really shows, you know, it's not a patient approach, but Jose showed he can he can put a lot of pitches in play and he's he really handles the bat like a hitter. Whereas Cespedes, it was man, that guy looks great in BP. And the game is not BP, right? There's a big difference. So we'll see, right? I'm, I always also try to stay very open-minded on players from year to year, right? Players do change all the time. They change mm-hmm. more now, I think, than they ever have in my history. And I, every time I do these lists, I try to approach them like a blank slate, right? What I think I know about a player may no longer be true. And I have to approach every single player as if I – is if what I knew about him might be wrong. I can't forget it, right? One, I'm not, that's not possible. And two, like they need to start somewhere. But I have mm-hmm. to be willing to say, I mean, look at the guys in the Royal system, Nick Prado and MJ Melendez. I saw probably 40 to 50 at-bats each of those guys in 2019, and they sucked. I mean, they were just awful. And I thought Prado has no chance to be a big leaguer like that. They take him to the alt site. They rework his swing. They do this organization-wide change in approach and how they teach hitters to – develop plans for at-bats, and both those guys are on my top 100 now, and I feel pretty confident in the evaluations. I had to walk into the to the ranking process and say, nope, these guys are not what I thought they were. If Cespedes shows that this year, I will make that adjustment to my rankings, and very I will try to get out in front and say, nope, this was wrong. He's a different player, because then at that point, my list is no longer informative, and when like Anthony Volpe for the Yankees came out this year and was a completely different guy than I thought he was. I wrote, I think in June, Hey, just guys, I was wrong. Different player. This guy's <laughs> a star. Do not, you know, almost like disregard what I previously said. Cause it was wrong. And I want readers to know as soon as I know something, I want readers to know it too. This is the Yankee. That's actually a top 100 prospect. Yes. Yeah. Top 10. <laughs> he is actually yeah. Yeah, the one who's legitimate, right? Yes. As opposed to the eight others that some Yankee fans argued should be on the top 100. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I was, I was going to ask you about the Royals system because I read that in your Royals write-up saying that they you know developed this uh, plan for improving pitch recognition or just approach. And given that the White Sox have... A number of guys who 
could be grades higher if they just had more patience at the plate or better recognition or a willingness to work deeper in counts. Like, do you know or can you uh, elaborate on how that happened? And could the White Sox theoretically get some of that? Yes, they could. And I think what happened with Kansas City is and any team could do it, but Kansas City made the top-down decision to do this, to say from we're going to – what we're doing in terms of teaching players is not working. We are not developing hitters like we should be. We're seeing hitters with a lot of talent um, not develop in our system. Uh, you know, When you spend money in high draft picks on Nick Prado and MJ Melendez and they're not good in high A – Maybe that is, you know, and multiple other players too. Maybe that's a sign that you need to change your top-down approach. And they did. They changed what they were. Prado was a swing change also. But with everyone else too, they went from way below the median in walk rate to well above it. I think it was a you know 33% increase year over year in walk rates for all of their minor league players. You well, 2019 to 2021. And they added Alex Umwalt as one of their player development executives, I don't know his exact title, but he has a senior role in player development. And they said he was one of the real architects of this too. And they were working with hitters and saying, okay, now here's what, here is how we want you to approach at-bats, how we want you to approach games, things we want you to be looking for, even pitch to pitch. There's no reason other teams can't do that. Austin Riley did it kind of on his own with help from people in the Atlanta system. But Austin was more the driver of that individual process because he knew – same thing. He knew in his own case what I am doing is not working. He was horrible in the big leagues for about a year and completely revamped his approach too. Players can do this. Not every player will do it. But players can do this individually. Teams can do this I think also top down. But what really I, – I, I want people to credit the Royals too for saying from the top – what we are doing is not working, and therefore we must change. It's very hard for people to admit, especially when you've made a large investment in time, money, people into a particular strategy or philosophy to say, not working. We need to throw it out and do something different. And they did, and we're already seeing tremendous results, at least within their minor league system. In the White Sox case, too, like guys like um, you know, Rodriguez and like a Mike Rodolfo, who's who they've have good years around their mm-hmm. flaws, they might be it might be hard for them to throw out the progress made in some fronts if they think it's going to, you know, disrupt that by trying to implement maybe a swing change or, you know, better uh, top-down philosophy. Just might they might be afraid of losing the hard-won progress, especially like yes. in the case like Adolfo. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever want to? I mean, that I think is also a hard thing, and it, it, people tend to latch on to a couple of. Right. Well, wait, wait. If we change everything, are we going to screw up? These these two guys are really good, right? We don't want to mess up. Those two guys, the progress they've made, instead of saying, you know, we need to look at the entire system, right? You have, for now, teams have up to 180 players under contract. Rob Manfred gets his way. They'll have about 30 players under contract instead. But mm-hmm. for now, you have all of these minor leaguers, right? Do, do you say, well, we want to just protect these two or three who've done well? No, you want to maximize everybody, right? Get the most that you possibly can. It is entirely possible that a philosophical change like that will hurt one player, and but maybe help seven, eight, nine others. You have to be willing to take that risk. And I'm not not to minimize what it does to the career of the one guy who does go backwards or doesn't thrive in the new system. But I do think it's fair to say from a an organizational approach, we're trying to help the greatest number of players we possibly can within our organization. Have you heard of a uh, consensus on the success or lack thereof of alternate training sites? Because I'm thinking like in the White Sox case, 
with the way they approached it, you know, they had uh, Thompson and Dahlquist and, and Kelly all on the alternate training sites. And I think the, you know, the, the thought was that they get a lot of benefit from the one-on-one time. They get a lot more benefit from facing, you know, fringe guys like Nicky Delmonico than like a Nicky Delmonico gets from facing guys out of high school. Like this seems like yeah. something that's going to be slanted towards the pitchers, but at least in the White Sox case, like the, the Thompson Dahlquist Kelly group, and I just kind of refer to them in one word. Um, sure. They, they ha- didn't make really any strides. Whereas guys who were left off the alternate training site, like Gavin Sheets and Romy Gonzalez, you know, Sheets didn't quite come out of nowhere, but he made some strides with his game. Gonzalez was a revelation, I think, from day one of the 2021 season. And they were not at the alternate training site whatsoever. So like from, I, I guess the White Sox might be just one case of 30 and they all might be different cases. But have you heard a consensus of like whether the experiment was, you know, I guess stronger in some cases than others? Was it a success? Do they hope they never have to do that again? <laughs> well, I think the last part is true, right? They definitely hope they don't have to do it again, but teams or some teams made more of it than others. I think that's fair. Um, I think your comment within there about who benefits more or less from that kind of environment is dead on that younger players, right? You level up by playing players who are better than you are, right? Whether they're, whether it's older, they're older, they're bigger and stronger, or they're just more experienced and therefore they're better at the you know, finer points. Are you, are you going to learn more? By facing a guy who's throwing 92 or a guy who's throwing 95. Well, probably the guy who's throwing 95, unless you can't hit 92 in the first place, in which case, what are we talking about? But I think in a lot of those cases, it helps. I think it can help position players and pitchers to go to a site like that. And even if it is just, you know, they had these weird games where they would, hey, we're only playing three innings today because that's all the pitching we have. And you'd never, at the alt sites, you would often not be able to field a full defense. So there'd be like, oh, hey, the strength and conditioning guy is out in left field right now. That's not ideal, but when that's all you have and you can have your – especially your younger players facing some of the older guys who are just hanging around in case the major league club needs somebody, I, I think that's a pretty good potential outcome. The Royals are one team I would say that did more than most at the alternate site. They were really doing a lot of hands-on instruction with individual players, including things like swing changes, mechanical changes. And obviously some of this approach stuff that I, that we've talked about, and there were other clubs that chose not to do that, chose not to invest the time necessarily into doing that. And, you know, I think it's a bit of a lost opportunity, but also I've, it, that's a, this is a very – this is a unique situation. I was certainly never confronted with anything like that in a couple of years. I was in a front office, and I don't have a lot to compare it to. So I don't want to be overly critical mm-hmm. of teams that said we're not doing too much at the alt site. We're just going to use that as basically a taxi squad for the big league club. I mentioned him briefly, but Romy Gonzalez, uh, what do you do with a prospect like him? And I know what you did. You ranked him fourth, but like just big picture, you know, missing the 2020 season, 2019 looked like an organizational player. Uh, 2021, he looked like he spent the pandemic getting bitten by a radioactive Beau Bichette and turning oh, into yes. an actual short good line. Like, I like that. What, what do you do with a guy like that? Yeah, it's amazing, right? When you, when I first, uh, when he, sort of first he first hit my radar it was like oh, is this like a high school guy i hadn't heard of or international free agent and then i look it's, wait, he was an 18, 18th round wait he went to miami like i probably saw this guy at some point mm-hmm. and just he wouldn't have been anything right he would have just gone right past those guys 
often just go right past me. And that, that happens to me all the time. It's a little bit of a function of how I go about my job too. But I'm guessing a lot of teams didn't have this guy in. He was just basically like a senior sign. Um, and he didn't play shortstop in college or very, very played it very, very little. Um, the White Sox were the ones who put him at shortstop more and said, let's see how this works. Um, and, you know, it's been good enough that he could at least do it on a, on a partial – a part-time basis, maybe be some sort of super utility guy. You know, the White Sox credit him moving him to short too with hey, he was just so comfortable there. It allowed him to do some more things at the plate. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm open-minded. But the fact is he did really, really start producing um, and started hitting the ball a lot harder. And whatever the causes of that, I, I feel like it's, it's pretty real. Mm-hmm. I feel like he could do something – and given his age, it's very now also like this is he should be on a major league club right now. Now, it's probably not a starting spot for him in Chicago, but I'm pretty sure, especially with the frequency of guys getting hurt last year, they could find 400 at bats for that guy this year. And I was very comfortable running him up the list too to say he's pretty good. He could do a couple of very valuable things and he's ready right now. I do want to make sure that guys who are ready right now to have some kind of positive value in the major leagues are at least properly represented on the list. I don't want to stuff it all with just high upside guys who are 17 to 19 years mm-hmm. old, where it might be three years before they actually matter to a lot of the readers. There is a little bit of balance. As much as I favor upside, I also have to say, hey, there, we might have a major league season this year, and then in that case, this guy might be relevant. And then we've circled around him a couple of times. I guess we'll just talk about Dawquist, Thompson, Kelly, in whatever order uh, you, know, you have them. Last year, I think it was fair to say you were – you like Thompson – a cut above Dahlquist and Kelly, you were you were you were bullish on his athleticism, but it seems like one year in, like none of uh, the group has been able to leverage their draft day strengths. Like you know, Dahlquist and Thompson were supposed to be athletes, but they're struggling with a repeatable delivery. And then Kelly was supposed to be kind of a a big Texas hoss, and he just hasn't mm-hmm. been able to uh, you know shoulder the load uh, theoretically, you know, I guess figuratively and literally with uh, fatigue, yeah, but right. just. Yes, uh, but we're, I guess you know, you rank them, you know, Dahlquist, Thompson, and Kelly in that order with the separation between Thompson and Kelly, but uh, I guess where do you f- feel they are in terms of, was it a lost year? Was anything gained from slogging it out in, 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 in Kannapolis and might, having to do it again? I think, yeah, I think, look, most guys, gosh, I feel like I, I, I forgot who I was even saying this to the other day, but... Generally, you don't get better by not playing, right? By not playing real competition, right? So even a guy who goes out and struggles in low A probably gets something out of the vast majority of guys should get something out of that. Um, you know, I think that I also think it would be fair to say Kelly probably got the least out of it. He was probably not healthy, and there were a couple outings where he just was not going to throw a strike no matter what, even if the hitter wasn't standing there. And those outings, okay. Maybe he doesn't get as much out of that. Whereas the other two guys, especially Dahlquist and Thompson, those guys both just need to pitch. I really – I feel pretty good about saying those guys will just – their only chance to get better is through more repetitions, even if they're not mm-hmm. necessarily getting results. I can't promise you they will both get better, but I think both uh, both of those guys should get better. Both of those guys have more things in their favor than Kelly does. Kelly has size, is velocity. He's really never, he's had always had trouble spinning a breaking ball. And I think it's pretty clear the command questions that there were about him in high school were valid and had carried over to pro ball. The other two guys, I mean, they both had some questions in high school too, but they've answered those enough that I feel better about 
saying those guys will gain more from continued reps and be able to move up the ladder, even if it's one level a year, whereas Kelly may have to go back and repeat the level uh, once he gets fully healthy. And also it might be good for him to say, no, go back there and have success, right? It's fine. If you go back there, if he goes out, rips through April and is the dominant guy, they, the White Sox clearly thought they were getting when they gave him first round money, we'll, we'll move you up. We're happy to move you up, but let's let, mm -hmm. set you up for success too. I could absolutely see that approach with him, and I think that would make sense to handle him differently than you handle the other two guys. As always, I appreciate your time uh, coming on this time of year to talk about your prospect list. And we always end with uh, an unrelated question because you are such an avid reader and a lot of Sox Machine uh, members of the community are also uh, big book nerds. So I always like asking you, what have you read recently that you'd recommend? Uh, it doesn't have to be baseball. Might uh, I think we've skewed towards either behavioral sciences or, or that regard for informing your critical thinking towards baseball. But if there's <laughs> anything else, uh, feel free to go in any direction. Yeah. Can I recommend a novel? Actually, sure, go for uh, it. It was the National Book Award winner this year, actually. And it's called Hell of a Book by Jason Mott, M-O-T-T. -T. Judged by his cover. It is a hell of a... <laughs> yes, it, it is. <laughs> yeah. It is a hell of a book, as it turns out. It lives up to its title. It is, it is brilliant. Uh, it is there's a metafictional angle to it, which I admit I am very much a sucker for. Folks who've read any of my writing on books know that I love the Master and Margarita, which um, itself has some early kind of metafictional or magical realism elements before the term even existed. At Swim Two Birds, another of my all-time favorite novels, very much metafictional. But in a hell of a book, there are two intertwined narratives, one of which is fiction, one of which is the author of that work of fiction and uh, addresses it – is, it is also very much a book about race in America. But I think it comes at that in, in enough of a new way too that as somebody who I you know, tried to read a lot of contemporary fiction that addressed specifically the black experience in America, that – I still I felt like I'd never read anything like this before. I just absolutely I tore through it. I thought the prose was was great. I thought it was really funny, while at the same time also very incisive. And um, there are enough twists and turns around that tapestry of fiction and metafiction that right up until the end I wasn't quite sure how he was going to pull everything together. And I, and in the end I really loved how he did. Okay, well I will include a link. Uh, to the book, a hell of a book, in our uh, <laughs> podcast post. So check for that uh, Thursday morning. Uh, as always, Keith, really appreciate your time. And if you uh, end up in Nashville scouting Vandy, we can go to Brista Parlor or get in a fight at Kid Rocks. Ooh. Either one? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, it's I will I will take any of that. I, I am really hoping to get back to Nashville this year because I was there for one night last year. I came in to see Kumar Rocker, who did not pitch mm -hmm. well and obviously didn't sign when he was drafted. And then the next morning I wake up and find out that Jack Leiter has been mysteriously scratched. So it was not a very productive trip for me. Hope, so I need to get back and reverse that. Fingers crossed. Thanks again. Yes. Yep. My pleasure. That's Keith Law. You can read his work at The Athletic, and you can also read his book, The Inside Game, which is available in paperback. We'll have links to everything we discussed in the podcast post at SoxMachine.com. Speaking of SoxMachine.com, if you'd like to support what we do, you can do so through Patreon at Patreon.com slash SoxMachine. There are multiple tiers of support and benefits, and it starts with an ad-free site and show with bonus content on both for as little as $2 a month, with annual plans coming with one month free. The extended edition of this episode features five extra minutes with Keith answering a couple of questions from the community. 
Supporters also get early access to merch, including the Me and My Boys Babippin shirt that I'm expecting to receive shortly. If you participated in the pre-order, be on the lookout for shipping info this weekend, and when I list the remaining stock, Patreon supporters will be the first to know about it. If you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast because of that hot Keith Law content, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google's podcast app, Spotify, and the rest. Josh and I will be back on Monday to talk about whatever baseball is or isn't happening and what should have been the first full week of spring training. For the time being, I'm Jim Margulis, and this has been the Sox Machine Podcast, a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball, and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.